for our Wednesday evening time, I'm launching into a, a series through the end of the summer and then into the fall, uh, focused on the women of the Bible. And we just closed out a series on the apostles and the role of the disciples in the formation of the early church as they followed Jesus and served him and then saw the gospel spread throughout the world. And we're going to be focusing now on some of the women of the Bible. And I think before I launch into this particular biographical character study tonight, that it would be helpful for me to communicate some foundational truths about women from a biblical perspective that I think lay the groundwork and are foundational to the overall uh, study. And it's uh, very unfortunate that we have to state this as explicitly as we do in the day that we live in, but there is much confusion about what uh, comprises gender and sexual identity and so on. And I want to be sure that we're working from the same framework and the same uh, foundation. And where I want to start from is that God created two sexes and two corresponding genders. That shouldn't be a radical statement, but it, it is somewhat in the day that we live in. And I'm going to read several verses here and then come back full circle to our main uh, passage tonight regarding Eve, the mother of the living. But in Genesis 1 and verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's what the Bible says. Genesis 5 and verse 2 says, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4, Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus affirmed the creation narrative, and nothing can change what God has made. Cultural proponents of gender confusion have tried to convince the current generation, that there are as many as 50 different gender options, if not more. And um, that's simply not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that human beings are male and female, and they're created as such in the image of God. So gender is biological, and it refers to creation distinctives. So what that means is it is not determined by psychology uh, but it is from fixed bodily realities. Andrew Walker wrote an essay entitled Gender and Sexuality, and he wrote this in part. As biblical scholar Richard Bauckham writes, biblical commands are not arbitrary decrees, but correspond to the way the world is and will be. Now, I'm going to continue that thought in just a second. But remember, the definition of truth is that truth is that which corresponds to reality. So if we're speaking of what things are and the reality of the way the world is, we're talking about truth. We're talking about that which corresponds to reality. He continues, when Christians discuss gender and sexuality, they must understand that the design for gender and sexuality in Scripture is the design that all humans are obligated to live within, even if they do not appear most uh, the, do not appear most the natural or easiest in light of sin. What Christians believe about sexuality and gender is not an quote-unquote in-house argument for debate among Christians only. 
the Bible understands gender and sexuality as creational realities that determine whether a society will organize itself in subjection to God's authority or in rejection of God's authority. So that's where we start from in the church. That this is the created order of God, male and female, made in the image of God. And according to the Bible, God created male and female to bear his image. And that means the likeness of God, even in the fallen state, we retain a residual of that. And then that's redemptively restored through faith in Christ. But the purpose of that male and female relationship is for the purpose of procreation and populating the earth. That was the original mandate that God gave. Also along with this, men and women have unique roles in the world. We would admit that there are many things that women can do that men cannot do, or it's not what they were primarily designed to do, and vice versa. Men and women are not interchangeable in any number of things because God created these distinctives for his purposes in the world, and he designed us physically and mentally uh, to fulfill complementary roles. So let me just say, in light of something that's come out recently, uh, there is no such designation as birthing people. There are mothers, and mothers are women. This is not a complex idea, and it's not something that's new. It's not something that we just came up with. It goes all the way back to the creation distinctive. Men and women, I want to be very clear on this, have equal standing before God and equal responsibility to follow and serve God. Genesis 3, or Galatians 3 and verse 28 rather says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So spiritually speaking, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are equal in the sight of God. There is no distinctive in that. We have equal standing, whether we be male or female, and we all have the responsibility to serve and to follow God. Building on that, men and women have unique roles in the church. Sometimes this is misunderstood because uh, people assign value to certain roles, and they think, well, if you affirm the fact that men and women have distinct roles in the church in uh, some specific areas, then that devalues one or the other. That's not the case. It has nothing to do with value. It's strictly focused on function and how God designed it to, to be ordered. That primarily relates to certain areas of spiritual authority, certain leadership roles in the church, and God calls on men and women to fulfill the roles and responsibilities designed for them in order to give glory to God. Further, women have always played an integral part in God's kingdom. If you survey the Old Testament, you'll find that women were active in the life of Israel. Uh, and this was in the midst of the context of Greek and Roman and Jewish cultures, which viewed women in very limited and restrictive ways. And yet they still had significance and particular roles within the nation of Israel. And Jesus loved and showed respect for women in his ministry. Women were very important to the ministry of Jesus and to the expansion of the early church, and it remains the same today. And if we diminish any of that, we diminish the creation order, we diminish the purpose and the roles, we diminish the distinctives, 
and that's not appropriate from a biblical standpoint. Katie Orr wrote a piece entitled, What Does the Bible Say About Women? And here's what she says in, in summary. Throughout the tapestry of the Old and New Testaments, we see a steady thread of God's intentional choice and good plan to include and honor women. In each and every historical period represented within the biblical world, it was normal for women to be oppressed, neglected, and even objectified as property. It is with this as the backdrop that God, shockingly to those of that day, consistently and purposefully invites women to be a part of his redemptive plan to rescue the world from their sin. So what she's saying is, listen, in the midst of all the milieu of of, uh, the way people treated women in certain cultural eras, that's not the biblical perspective. That's not the value that God places on these distinctives and and on these roles as it relates uh, to women. You're all familiar with the uh, proverb, uh, Proverbs 31 and verse 30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Uh, The second part of that says, give her the reward of her labor and let her works praise her at the city gates. And this is the premise that we're working from as we're thinking about these character studies here in the coming weeks, however however long we decide to stay on this particular subject. Now for our study on Eve, the mother of all the living. I've been in church my entire life. I have literally heard thousands of sermons. I have preached and listened to myself preach thousands of sermons. I have never heard a sermon on Eve that was not almost exclusively focused on her role in the fall. And that's appropriate in one sense because that's mainly where we learn about her uh, in the Bible. But I think if we go a little bit deeper, there's more to that than just her single worst moment. Um, Every single reference that I've ever heard preached on Eve focused on that single worst moment of her life. And those things are certainly important and central to the redemptive history, but they don't tell the entire story of her life or her significance. Genesis 3 and verse 20 says this, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now we're going to come back to this and I want you to hold that thought because it's going to be important. I want to make a very important point as I close out the message tonight. But the name Eve comes from a Hebrew word meaning the living or life, uh, literally. Uh, So she was called Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Uh, She, of course, was not the mother of Adam, uh, but all who followed. And in that regard, Eve would be considered as the mother of all the physically living. Now, this has also been challenged, especially in late 19th and 20th century scholarship, where people try to say Genesis 1 through 11 are just uh, allegorical, they're figurative, they're representative of of some type of beginning of man and of uh, creation, whatever that looked like, but they weren't actual people, and we don't stem from these actual parents. And I just want you to know also, to make it clear moving forward here, I believe that Genesis 1 through 11 and the rest of the Bible are literal at every point that they're intended to be literal. There are places in the scripture where it's obviously figurative language that's being used to make a comparison. We could speak of something like Jesus's parables. Uh, to make a reference like that. But this creation narrative and the fall and everything that happened after it, 
It actually happened. This is a record of what God did through our first parents. And it's important for us to understand that. God would pronounce all that he created as good. And when he did that, he commanded them uh, to be fruitful and multiply. uh, And they did. And I want to look first here at the creation of Eve, kind of to get the backdrop of what leads up to that single worst moment that we all know about. Uh, She was the only woman who was ever made without a mother or a father. God created her after allowing Adam to see that he did not have a suitable companion. Uh, There was no other creature like himself. We read in the scripture about how God brought all the different animals to Adam to see what he thought they should be named, but none of the animals were like him is the language that is used. And Eve was created in the image of God from the man. Uh, Genesis 2 and verse 22 says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Eve, in that sense, was created to be Adam's wife. And the way the story reads, a deep sleep fell upon Adam, and God took one of his ribs, and then God brought Eve to Adam after he had made her. Uh, She was the only created being directly created from the living tissue of another creature. So what's happening here is God basically performed a surgical procedure on Adam. I read a little interesting account that this account in Genesis is actually what led to the creation of anesthesia for surgical and dental procedures, at least in part. A man by the name of William Thornton Green Morton was a dentist And in 1846, he used um, uh, inhaled ether to put his patients to sleep in order to perform procedures. And he said that he had read this passage, and it made him think about finding a way for people to do that in his time and following. So at least for him, it was influential for him. But what we know here is that Eve was not an afterthought. The way the language of the Scripture reads... She was carefully created and designed. So we might literally translate what it says about the creation of Eve as God built a woman. That's what he did. And that's the way the the narrative reads in the story. In Genesis 2 and verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, for she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So Adam instantly recognized that Eve was a gift from God. She was a helper that was suitable for him. Eve lived with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And uh, the scripture says in Genesis 2 and verse 8, leading up to this account, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and he put the man there that he had formed. So let's think about it this way in summary. Eve was the first woman. She was created by God uniquely. Eve was the first wife, and that was the role that God gave her in that creation order. Eve was the first mother and grandmother, and that's a big deal. She is central to everything that happens after that. Now let's move to the transgression of Eve. And this is the part we typically think about. This is the story that we tell, whether we give context to it or we talk about anything leading up to it or anything that happened after it. This is the story. This is what she's remembered for. 
In Genesis 2 and verse 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Now you remember what happened. There was a serpent who is described in the scripture as being more subtle or more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, who came into the garden. And he created doubt about what God had commanded regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was his strategy to create doubt and to cast questions over the relationship of these people with God. And that somehow God was holding them back. That somehow God was restricting them from something that they should have had. And this is one of the things that we still see as a temptation of sin. We are convinced that if we partook in certain activities or we had certain things or we did certain things, somehow we would be more happy or more content or more satisfied than we presently are. And in doing so, when we yield to that temptation, what happens is we lose sight of all the things that God has given us to enjoy, and we get fixated on this one thing that we think is somehow going to change our lives. And of course, the serpent with Satan appearing in disguise, as he does consistently, being the liar that he is. And Revelation 12 and verse 9 tells us that this creature is the great dragon, the old serpent, called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. Now, what does it mean that the serpent was subtle? It means he was deceptive, he was sly, he was cunning, he was crafty, he was wily. And in all of those things, he sowed the seeds of confusion. And the serpent asked a question, has God really said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, I mean, let me just address an obvious question here. Did God know this was going to happen? Yes, God knew that was going to happen because uh, God knows all things. The next question people often ask is, if God knew this was going to happen, then why did God permit this to happen? And I was listening to an old ser- sermon the other evening uh, by Billy Graham, and he said with all the force that he could, there are just some things that we're not intended to fully know. And he said there are just some things that we're not going to know, possibly even in eternity. And he said we just accept them because that's what the Bible teaches. So that's the short answer. But the longer answer is God created Adam and Eve, and he gave them a measure of free will. Now, if we don't believe in free will, if we're going to hold to some type of uh, fatalistic determinism, then we're going to very easily make God the author of sin, which we're never going to do, because that'd be unbiblical. Uh, Just like we don't want to make man the author of salvation, because that would also be unbiblical. But we understand that somehow in the mystery of God's will, he gave free will, and he wanted them to be able to obey him because they loved him and wanted to serve him rather than being forced to do so. And that's the short answer encapsulated about free will, but certainly uh, this is a much deeper question that we could spend a lot more time on. So the serpent asked the question, has God really said? And Eve replied, chapter 3 and verse 2 and 3, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So the confusion deepens, and the serpent responds, You shall not surely die. 
For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So don't miss this. The satanic deception always comes out of questioning the word of God. Did God really say? Are we going to take God's word at face value as coming from the spirit of God himself, breathed out to us as truth or reality for us to follow? Are we going to start sitting in judgment on the word of God? This is what is happening in many so-called churches today where they're rewriting the whole narrative. And they say, no, that's not what God really meant. And they accept all sorts of things, even including gender confusion, confusion about human sexuality, accepting things that are unbiblical and blatantly dishonoring to God. And it all comes back to this satanic deception. Did God really say? And the serpent wanted her to believe that God was holding her back and he was being selfish with his position. So what did he do? He suggested that they would be enlightened. Now, does this not also sound familiar with people who argue, even using the word of God to convince us that things that are unholy are holy and things that are holy are unholy? They try to convince us, well, you've just not really been enlightened. You're back in the dark ages somewhere. That's last, that's last century. Certainly you wouldn't believe that in the 21st century. Who would believe such a thing? Well, people that believe the Bible are going to believe such a thing because that's what it teaches. And we don't think that we're wiser than God is. And sin entered into the world through disobedience. Now, we see a mirroring of this pattern of sin in James's description of how sin comes in, in James chapter 1. And I'll read verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, verse 15, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So notice the progression. Every person is tempted when they're drawn away by their own lust, by their own desire, and they're enticed. 1 John 2 and verse 16 says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So we get drawn away and we're enticed by our own evil desire. And then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then when sin is fully grown, when it's fully flowering, it gives birth to death. That's what happened in the garden. It's what happens today. So if we overlay this with 1 John 2 and verse 16, the lust of the flesh is when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. The lust of the eyes is that it was pleasant to the eyes. And the pride of life is that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So what she did was she took the fruit and she ate from it. She gave it also to her husband and he ate from it. And all of a sudden, the Bible says that they were ashamed. Their eyes were opened. They had been naked and unashamed. But now their eyes were opened. Genesis 3 and verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Again, a common pattern for sin. What was their first response when they were ashamed? They tried to cover it up. Is that not what we and other people do today as well? Well, that's not what really happened. Now, 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 that's not what I really said. No, that, 
that, that's not really what I did. And all of a sudden, you dig yourself a big hole because what are you trying to do? You're trying to cover it up. Rather than taking responsibility, rather than repenting, rather than owning the situation, you start making all these excuses trying to convince yourself and other people that it's not that bad, and you want to cover up your situation. And that's what they did. They tried to cover it up because they were ashamed. What else did they do? They hid from God. That's what sin will cause you to do. It'll cause you to try to run from God. You can't outrun God. There's no way where that you can hide from God. But that's what sin will cause you to do is to think that you can run from God, to think that you can equivocate on the situation, to think that you can convince other people that it's not as it seems. And that's what they tried to do. They tried to hide. And it says in verse 8, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And they were afraid. It was the fear of facing God. But I think if they were honest with themselves, it was also the fear of dying, um, the consequence. After all, there are consequences for sin. Fellowship with God is broken. Sin causes fellowship with other people to be broken. And, of course, two specific curses were given to Eve and to all her daughters. First of all, God would multiply Eve's pain in childbearing. Second, God would pronounce that the relationship between man and woman would be characterized by conflict because of sin. These two curses have certainly proven to be true in every woman's life throughout history. No matter how many medical advances we achieve, uh, childbearing is always a painful and a stressful experience for a lady. And no matter how advanced and progressive society becomes, relationships between men and women uh, always involve some type of strife and struggle just because of our sinful nature that, that we have. You can guarantee there was going to be a price to be paid. That's what we learn here in this passage. Pain in childbearing, sorrow in child rearing, a cursing of the ground, and death passed from them to their descendants. And then they were driven from the garden and they had no place with God. There's a heavy price to pay for sin. And if we try to cover our sin, God will uncover it. But if we uncover our sin to God, he will cover it. I want to say that again. If we try to cover our sin, God will uncover it. And if we try and if we uncover our sin to God, God will cover it. And that brings me to the next point in the salvation of Eve. Now, in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed, a sacrifice had to be made, an animal had to die. In Genesis 3 and verse 21, it says, The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. One commentator said there are only two religions, the religion of fig leaves and the religion of God's grace. The religion of fig leaves tries to cover ourselves, or the religion of God's grace is that God can cover us in a garment that has been purchased with the life of another. Salvation has always been by faith. And it's by faith that we are covered and clothed in the righteousness of God. Now, I don't think it's overstating the case here to say this was the first act of redemption recorded in the Bible. So let's go a little further into it. 
I think this indicates that Adam and Eve were in fact saved because God provided a covering for them through a sacrifice. I think it presupposes their repentance. And I think we're going to see Adam and Eve in heaven because of the redemptive grace of God. Now, over and over in the Bible, salvation is communicated through the metaphor of the covering. Uh, Think about the Day of Atonement, for example, when the high priest would take the blood of the animal and sprinkle it on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, and the blood became a covering for the impurities of his people. And over and over we see that. This is the foreshadowing of the whole thing because it's pointing forward to the ultimate covering that we have in Jesus Christ. So I made the statement earlier that Eve is the mother of all the physically living. Now let's think about how Eve is the mother of all the spiritually living. There was a word of hope that Adam heard that day in God's word to the serpent. Genesis 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Now this is not the end of it, but this was part of God's curse on the serpent and also a prophecy of the spiritual battle that would follow. There would be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Let me state it another way. Satan hates God and he hates God's people. And there's a spiritual conflict and a battle even today. And the battle began as soon as Eve bore her first children. In Genesis 4, Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel. You remember what Cain did? He murdered his brother Abel because Abel's heart was right with God. Cain's heart was not. And as Genesis progressed, Cain's line brought further violence and rebellion against God. Adam and Eve had another son. And the other son's name was Seth, according to Genesis 4 in verse 25. I'm kind of partial to him. And the scripture says, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. Now make this connection. The word child in Genesis 4 and verse 25 is the same word, seed or offspring, that is used in Genesis 3 and verse 15. That's important because the promise of the seed of the woman had not been fulfilled through Cain. And then Genesis 4 and verse 26 says, Seth also had a son and he named him Enosh. And at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Genesis presents us with a godly seed of the woman represented by Seth and his offspring as opposed to the seed of the serpent represented by Cain and his offspring. So Eve is the mother of all physically living people. She's the mother of all spiritually living people. And ultimately, she's the mother in the sense of the line of Christ the Savior. Now, obviously not directly his mother, but in the line. And and let's trace this down just a bit. Genesis 3 and verse 15, I already read the part about putting enmity between you and the woman. And, And then it says, in between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is understood to be the earliest prophecy that we have of the Messiah in the Old Testament. If you look at the thread of redemption that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible, you'll find that that thread is tied at the beginning in Genesis 3 and verse 15 and the promise of what was to come. And no sooner, this, now, this, this is amazing, no sooner had man sinned than God promised a Savior. 
That's grace. When they sinned that day, they did not physically die, but they did die spiritually and they were separated from God. And they needed a Savior. Adam and Eve needed a Savior. The human race needed a Savior. God promised that the Savior would come through Eve. And it's fascinating to trace the line of Christ through the Old Testament. Adam and Eve, Seth, and then Noah and Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to his son Judah, and then David, and then ultimately born to Mary. And both Mary and Joseph stood in the line of David through different ways, through different lines. And while Eve was the first to sin, and Adam followed, and death was the consequence, God freely offered to them the answer. And when Adam heard the promise of a Savior, um, he does not call her the mother of the dying. In faith, believing in God's promise, he calls her the mother of all the living. And that too is the grace of God. And here we are, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into the world and the eternal Son of God became flesh and he was born into the world as a human being. And what happened? Genesis 3 and verse 15 became a reality. Satan struck at his heel. He tempted him. He attacked him in his humanity. What did Jesus do? He crushed Satan's head. He died on the cross for our sins. He overcame sin and death so that we could be forgiven and we could live with God forever. And Adam named Eve the mother of all the living because she's the mother of all the physically living. She's the mother of all the spiritually living. And then ultimately through her came the Messiah. Now, what about some references to Eve in the New Testament? There are only two that I want to point to. And that's 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3 and 1 Timothy 2 and verse 13 and 14. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, he says, but I'm afraid, this is Paul writing, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. So what does Paul do? He uses her as a warning to warn his audience. Then there's some further instructions on order in the church. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 13 and 14, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And let me say that, as I've said several times, if you want your story to be told, you really usually don't want it to be as a cautionary tale. And as much as Eve is significant to the whole story, her story is still a cautionary tale of what happens when people are disobedient to God. But by God's grace, she turned to faith and God used her in a significant way. I'm going to give you a quote from Matthew Henry because I think it speaks to the complementary nature of Eve relative to Adam especially. And then I'm going to come toward a close here. Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled out by him or on by him, but out of his side to be equal to him and under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him. I think this speaks of the incredible value and the purpose and the significance of why God created her as he did. Adam named Eve the mother of all the living after they had fallen into sin. Eve can be viewed as describing what the woman would become as a source of life. 
And her name speaks prophetically of what God would ultimately do. And after all, humanity would not exist without her. Every tribe, tongue, and nation originated with her by the sovereignty of God. And that makes her very significant in the story of creation, the story of redemption, and even the understanding that we have today of what gender and family and social structures should look like. And I say this in closing tonight, the Bible introduces us to many women whose lives can teach us valuable lessons and actions to emulate and actions to avoid. You know what, if we're honest, if somebody was to just tell the story of our lives, you know what that story looked like? Actions to emulate and actions to avoid. That's how it'd be. Why? Because we live in a sin-fallen world. And we don't stand in our righteousness, we stand in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's all of grace. So I hope this study in the coming weeks is uh, interesting to you, a little bit different than, than uh, what I've done recently, certainly, or maybe done in the past. And I'm looking forward to it as we move forward through some more Old Testament examples. So I want to pray, and we're going to be dismissed for tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, none of it is by accident. It is all given to us that we might know you and make you known. We thank you for the life of Eve. And while uh, she transgressed greatly, uh, you had a specific plan for her just as you have a specific plan for us. And it was in your covering that they found deliverance. And it was in Christ ultimately that we all find deliverance. And I pray that we would live in light of that and be a people whose lives are uh, reflective of your righteousness. And I thank you, Lord, that uh, we can learn from these examples in the Bible. And most importantly, these examples in the Bible point us to you and you are our hope. And we're grateful for that. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.